Welcome to the Truth for Doubt discussion series. I'm your host, Michael Badger, and this week we have with us the president and founder of the apologetics ministry, Stand to Reason, Greg Kokel. Greg joins us to not necessarily talk about a specific apologetic argument, but instead how to use the apologetic arguments that we already know effectively in a conversation with an unbeliever. He walks through various methods of how we can stay in the driver's seat of the conversation. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. All right, Greg Kokel, thank you again so much for uh, for joining me. This is uh, don't tell my wife this, but I think this is probably <laughs> going to be my uh, my favorite Christmas present by far. So oh my so goodness! Well, well, that's very sweet, and you you flatter me, Michael. I'm glad to chat with you today. All right. Well, for those of uh, for the people listening, can you? Just kind of give a little bit overview of who you are, maybe how you came to faith, and, and what drew you to apologetics specifically? Well, yeah, I've been a Christian for a long time, for 46 years, so I'm going to have to dig back into the ancient records <laughs> uh, for some of this. But um, I actually was raised a Roman Catholic and uh, in the 50s and 60s, and then in the mid-60s, I started making my own decisions about my convictions. I realized I didn't believe that. And by rejecting what I've been raised with, raised with, I rejected all of Christianity, thinking that I'd been there, done that kind of thing. Then embraced a, a, an absolutely uh, exciting world of new ideas and uh, concepts and leaving the old restrictions behind and embracing the counterculture of the 60s and the early 70s. Mm -hmm. Gave me a great sense of freedom at first, but I realized eventually, like uh, many people do, that that kind of freedom is not real freedom. It's slavery. And uh, then I heard from my younger brother, amazingly, uh, the, 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 the full gospel, if you will, the gospel not just of law and works, but the gospel of the grace of God. And that transformed me, uh, Michael. When I became a Christian in 1973, um, I, I, I began to aggressively follow Christ. And that meant uh, that was during the Jesus movement in Southern California. And so there were a lot of people who were becoming Christian then. There was a lot of excitement here, and there was a lot of interaction with the culture. Which, which was very different than it is now, because all of the big issues that are assaulting Christians um, in the public square are, were not issues then, except for classics like the problem of evil and that Jesus was the only way of salvation. I mean, these are, the, these are constant issues to deal with, understandably, and this, the, cross, the cross has always been a stumbling block. So, but what happened is I was part of a Christian community back then, and I was being discipled, but one of the things that uh, I realized is even though, ironically, strangely for me, given what I do, apologetics did not feature into my conversion. Uh, a whole bunch of other people that uh, that you know and I know that other names might recognize, uh, Frank Turek and Jay Warner Wallace and, um, and at least Strobel, you know, these, these are people that were deeply influenced by the facts, and God used that to bring them in. Uh, but that wasn't my case. All I could say is that uh, little by little, I just got reeled in by the Holy Spirit, and in September 1973, I realized this stuff is true. And that's when I made uh, a decision to follow Jesus. 46 years now later, I'm, I'm still hanging in there. And, um, and I realized also short, short, uh, soon after I became a Christian 
that unless we can we can uh, make sense of our point of view to skeptics, they're not going to give it a listening. By and large, now, like I said, there are exceptions to that, but um, by and large, this is, God uses good arguments to bring people to Christ. People say you can never argue anybody into the kingdom. This is just flat out false. There, I just gave you three examples, uh, famous examples of that, and I've seen it all the time in my own life with other people. So anyway, this is uh, since since I, I ran into that reality in engaging people on the street, as it were. And my temperament just seems to gravitate towards more left-brain kinds of things than right-brain. I got very interested in apologetics early on. In the early days, in the 70s, there were very few people to draw from. Josh McDowell, John Montgomery, Francis Schaeffer, Walter Martin in the area of cults, and uh, Norm Geisler, you know, and uh, that was it. Now we have a plethora of... uh, of options and writers and conferences and everything. And this is like a dream come true for me as a Christian communicator that uh, 40, 20, 26 years ago when we started Stand a Reason with the goal of training Christians to think more carefully about their convictions and being able to make a uh, thoughtful, gracious, attractive, winsome kind of uh, defense for classical Christianity and classical Christian values. Well, back then there weren't many, uh, many things going, but we were kind of in at the ground level. And this is the sovereignty of God, Michael. As an organization, we were in at the ground level of a ground swell in the last 25 years of interest in uh, thoughtful Christianity is the way I like to put it. Christianity we're thinking about. And so I had a radio show back then in Southern California, uh, started in 1990 three years, four years later is when we started Stand the Reason, but it gave, uh, that show gave me kind of a footprint or a launching pad uh, to kind of get rolling in this enterprise. And and over the years, just kind of laying it down day after day after day, we have built Stand the Reason uh, with our speakers and our writing and our website at str.org mm-hmm. to be um, you know, to be a, a, a main player, I think, in the community, in the apologetics community. And a lot of people over the years have taken advantage of that. So that's kind of like the, the backstory of my whole enterprise. I'm, I'm now kind of a, a, kind of a, a, a grandfather in, the, in the, the enterprise, so to speak. And guys like you are the young guns, Michael. And so I'm glad to be able, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to be able to be an encouragement to you and to many others, like those on my team, for example, and uh, and a whole bunch of other people who are really moving in. Uh, I call them the third column. Those five gentlemen I mentioned to you that had an influence to me. I say that the first column. Uh, the second column is all of the people in the last uh, 40 years or so that um, were maybe pups during the Jesus movement. People like me and William Lane Craig and, and, and uh, J.P. Moreland and Ravi Zacharias and the whole crowd, you know, and we have kind of grown up standing on the shoulders of those initial people. We're kind of the second column and we have visibility. But really what's happening is the, the, the real work is being done by what I call the third column. And that is the, the massive multitude of rank and file committed followers of Christ who are learning how to engage in a thoughtful and an attractive and an effective way where their boots 
meet the ground, so to speak, and and uh, in maybe smaller enterprises, blogs, podcasts, coming uh, uh, mom and pop organizations that are having an influence in the local church and the local community and the local university, all that kind of thing. And I'm thrilled to be um, kind of a, a go-between of sorts between my mentors, my intellectual mentors, and those that I'm able to take that take uh, from the smart guy, so to speak, and translate and then and then disseminate to all of you who are really making the biggest difference right now for the cause of Christ. Well, that's wonderful. And and it's it's a really encouraging to to hear that from you. And I mean, you, um, along with you know, Robbie Zacharias and all those guys that you mentioned, you know, you guys are one of those people that if I could just have a sliver of your brain power, then I would be <laughs> set for the rest of my life. So it's, it's uh, an amazing, I mean, you can just see the the hand of God working in, in all of these things when it comes to apologetics and, and the right. people that came, uh, you know, before, before all of us that we can just stand on each other's shoulders. And it's, it's that's, fantastic. That's the way it works. One, once I said to JP Moreland, I said, Jay, I don't remember, I don't know where, where you let off and I begin in terms of what I teach, because there's so many things that I've internalized from mm -hmm. JP and C.S. Lewis and others. So that, that, but this is the way it works. You know, we just, we are all kind of organically, spiritually attached to the generation before us that has, has done its work and its time and passed it on. And mm -hmm. I'm just glad to be part of that chain. Passing Absolutely. the baton on. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you'll have your turn too, Michael, and you're you already have it. So oh, well, I appreciate that. It's uh, hey, if I could just be a just in service for God in, in even the smallest way, yeah. I'll be more than happy. Yeah. I actually got introduced to you um, not necessarily through staying to reason, but actually through your book Tactics. Right. Uh, and I think Tactics was one of those apologetic books that came to me at the exact right time because, huh. again, as my wife will attest. I, I can put my foot in my mouth a lot when I'm having conversations <laughs> with people. So I was I was in the market for something to just help me with that, to help me along uh, with the conversations. And so I was wondering if you could just kind of tell a little bit about what your thought process was when you were writing tactics, you know, why you wrote tactics and maybe some of the influences um, that uh, that came into play when you were writing that book. Sure. Uh, and by the way, I can sympathize entirely about foot in mouth disease. You know, yeah. I, I read yeah. a funny line from the comic Stephen Wright today, and he said something to the effect of experience is the thing you get right after you need it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. So, you know, knowing how to maneuver in these circumstances requires wisdom. And uh, and how do you get wisdom to make good decisions? Well, you get wisdom by making bad decisions in previous <laughs> encounters. And really, that's a that's a story of my own life. I I <clears throat> people listen to the radio show. I've been doing 30 years. And they say, I can't believe how patient you are with people who are opposing you and you kind of keep your cool. And there's two reasons for that. One is I got thousands of people listening, so I'm on my best behavior. <laughs> That's one thing. <clears throat> the second thing is, though, is that um, <clears throat> I've had a lot of time to make a lot of mistakes. And I was really, really uh, a loose cannon early on in the Jesus movement. And I had some good people that, especially one who mentored me and that helped me to grow. But what I've done with the, uh, the, the tactics book is to try to take those things that I have learned over time. And it wasn't like I just sat down and just cranked out a bunch of ideas. 
These are things that I've developed in the largely in the furnace of experience, making a lot of mistakes before I started kind of doing it more effectively. And um, and the there were actually two parts to tactics. And in the I wrote the initial book 10 years ago, and that's the one that you got. <clears throat> the 10th anniversary edition has just come out. And there's actually quite a bit more, <clears throat> excuse me, that's available in the new book. Just been out for uh, actually a week tomorrow. Oh, yeah. wow. That's, that's yeah. exciting. Yeah, actually, um, on Amazon, I just checked this morning. I've got 35 reviews so far, and every single one of them is five stars. So right. uh, I know I'm probably going to break the chain before too long, but I'm really happy with that. Um, because I think, uh, I mean, in my humble opinion, it's a five-star book, right? What author doesn't say that? But I've seen how it, the, no, the notions in there have changed my life and have changed the lives of other people who employ the tactics. Now, um, uh, there's actually two aspects to the game plan in a certain sense. And in the second edition, I spend more time developing the first thing. And the first thing is really a way of looking at the, the project that we generally call evangelism. Okay. Um, being, uh, becoming a Christian in the Jesus movement, um, we had a certain way of doing things that pretty much is the way people do things nowadays. You know, you go out to witness, you share the simple gospel, and you hope and try uh, to get a person to sign on the dotted line to pray to receive Christ, okay? Notice that that is a harvest approach to evangelism. Right. We're out there harvesting. In the Jesus movement, it wasn't that hard because of what the Holy Spirit was doing and a number of other factors. Things have changed in the last 50 years, okay? And uh, and I realized, and I'm just going to give a little aphorism, a little saying that has helped me tremendously. It's not even that profound. It's obvious in a certain sense. But most people have never really thought about how it applied to evangelism. And here's the aphorism. Before there can be any harvest, there always has to be a season of, let's just call it gardening, Okay. Before there could be any harvest, there always has to be a season of gardening. Like, no, duh. It's so obvious. But in evangelism, if we are pretty much in a harvest mentality, so that if we go out and we either don't bring anybody to Christ, then and other people are, then we're kind of losers. Or uh, if we if if we think that's what's required of us, we don't even go out. Because that idea kind of spooks us to get into a confrontation where we try to get people to sign on the dotted line, especially in the context of this culture. Oh, we're just going to sit on the bench. We're not going to get in play at all. And so there's a whole bunch of people who aren't harvester types that are sitting on the bench not in play, which means the gardening is not getting done for the harvest to be plentiful. Now, John, Jesus in John chapter 4, after the woman at the well incident, told his disciples that they were about to reap where they did not sow, all right? And, uh, and he says, the, the proverb is true, some, sows and some sow and some reap. Now, in that statement, Jesus is identifying something important, that there's one field, okay, and really one team, but there are two seasons and therefore two types of workers. There, are, there is a sowing and a reaping season, uh, and there are sowers and reapers, what I'm calling gardeners and harvesters, and both are necessary. This is the key here. 
Indeed, Jesus says, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. We have different jobs. I am convinced, uh, Michael, that most people in the body of Christ are not harvesters. They're gardeners, okay? And as I look back on my own life over the last 46 years being a Christian, and even my public life, people see what I do on the radio or speaking at universities or writing books or lecturing or whatever it happens to be, I'm gardening. I'm a gardener. And to really freak your audience out, I'll say this. I have not led someone to Christ in at least 30 years. What a loser. (laughs) That's because I realize that I'm not a harvester. I'm a gardener. But I will say this. I mentioned some names earlier, like Jay Warner Wallace, for Mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Jim was listening to our radio show and me on the air when he was still an atheist. Jay Warner Wallace was in my garden. Mm-hmm. Abdu Murray, some people might recognize that name. He's the yeah. senior vice president of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He's second from the top right now. He used to be a Muslim. Then he became a Christian. And then he became a Christian evangelist uh, and an apologist. Okay. Abdu Murray was listening to our radio show when he was still a Muslim. Abdu was in my garden. And what happened? Somebody came into my garden. Then they harvested my crop. <laughs> Get out of my garden. You know, no, that's not my attitude. We're all in this together. Okay. Yeah. And so what, what I'm trying to help Christians to see is that if they're under the pressure of being a harvester and pressing for the decision, um, maybe they're in the wrong role of the body of Christ, especially if that is really discomforting for them. There is another role, and that's gardening. And what the game plan of the tactics book allows them to do is allows them to have a method by which they can garden more effectively. And Mm -hmm. this, I think, Mm -hmm. Michael, is why people have responded for the last 10 years so magnificently to this book. It's been a bestseller the whole time. And why now when we got the new edition with 40% new material, double the number of tactics that are involved, um, six new chapters, why people are climbing on board and giving it five-star recommendations and telling everybody, you got to get this book, all right? Most authors would love to have that kind of recommendation. But I think in this particular case, it's legitimate. It's coming from the people like you who have used the book for years and found it to be absolutely um, uh, uh, irreplaceable in their, uh, in their, their arsenal, so to speak. Of, of books to help them to be better ambassadors for Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And in the beginning of the book, you say something that I think makes a lot of Christians maybe like hesitate and, and do like a double take and make sure that they read it right. Yeah. But in it, you say that arguing is a virtue. Yeah. And I've met a lot of Christians who would say almost the exact opposite. So I was wondering if you could unpack that and kind of, and say what it means and then how it kind of changes your perspective as you're going into a conversation with another. Sure. Well, here I I make a distinction between arguing and quarreling. Okay. Mm -hmm. Paul says in second Timothy chapter two, the end of the chapter there, he says the Lord's bond servant should not be quarrelsome but patient when wronged, et cetera. Now, he's saying that believers should not be out there looking for a fight. And, you know, as a young believer, I was out looking for a fight. I mean, that was my temperament. And a lot of aggressive apologetics types are like that. And this is what puts 
turns people off a little bit about apologetics. But, but he says, uh, no, we shouldn't be quarrelsome. But the fact that Jesus and the apostles all engaged in arguments um, puts that issue in a different light. An argument <clears throat> is not a fight in the sense that we're using it. An argument is a point of view buttressed by, by uh, reasons and rationale. And so uh, famously in John chapter five, you can read it. Your listeners can read it. Uh, Jesus said, you know, you don't believe me because I'm a soul witness. And you say nobody can be a witness to themselves. OK, well, what about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a witness to me. All right. Uh, what about Moses? Bo Moses bore witness to me. Oh, the scriptures, the scriptures speak of me. And by the way, you know, I've been moving around town doing these miracles the miracles bear witness to me. So what is Jesus doing? He's giving four or five lines of support and evidence that the Pharisees respect by and large. You know, John the Baptist was a mixed uh, was was a, a mixed bag for the Pharisees. But nevertheless, um, he is giving a rationale why people should take him seriously. OK, that's an argument. Um, he says to the, the Pharisees who say, um, you're casting out demons by the rulers of demons. He said, how, a, a, a house divided against itself can't stand. You know, if Satan would cast out Satan, he's destroying himself. That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what is he doing? If then, that's an argument, mm -hmm. Right. And so he's given, and, and the scriptures are filled with that, not just in the Gospels, not just in the book of Acts, but we see theological arguments in, uh, in the epistles, and we go all the way back to the Old Testament, we see time and time and time again, um, evidences given to support a point of view. Even the Exodus, the 10 plagues were all given, and this is a phrase that's repeated 10 times, actually, in the account so that they shall know that there is a God in Israel. Every plague was directed specifically against an Egyptian deity. You know, they, they thought that they worshiped the Nile River. Okay, I'll turn it to blood. They worship sun. I'll put the sun out, is what God's saying, and on and on and on. So these were polemics. These were arguments of sorts. This is why I say arguments are good. Because they give people reasons why they ought to take our view seriously. Quarrels, no, that's bad. That just mm -hmm. makes people mad. And my basic rule is if anybody gets mad, me or them, if anyone gets mad, I lose. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right? So, because people who are angry are not in a position to be persuaded. But, uh, but if we can conduct ourselves in a manner that keeps people from being angry inappropriately. Some people get mad at the message. I can't do much about that. But if they're mad at me because of me, okay, shame on me then. If we can do that, bypass that, then we're going to be more effective in our conversations. And that's what one of the things the tactical game plan allows people to do. And one of the tactics that you you spend a lot of time on, and I think it has kind of multiple steps that that help you in these arguments towards unbelievers, is is the Colombo tactic, right? right. And <laughs> and being able to use that. And I don't want to make it to where nobody buys your book now because you're explaining it all. But I've I've been wanting oh. to ask you these questions for so long. Uh, but uh, 
No, that's great. Uh, the more I say, the more I think attractive the book itself becomes because I can't Absolutely. do it all in 45 minutes here. No worries. Yeah. Well, hey, could you explain what the Colombo tactic is and, and how you actually use it within a sure. conversation? Sure. There's a, when it gets to the tactics, there's two kinds of tactics, so to speak. The point of tactics largely is to help you to maneuver well in conversations and especially stay in the driver's seat of the conversation. doesn't mean you're doing most of the talking. Uh, actually, you're doing less of it and more listening, but you're managing, pardon me, the conversation, not manipulating, but managing for the purposes that you think are best. And by the way, this is something even a total rank novice can do with the basic steps of the game plan. And there is one tactic that keeps you in the driver's seat. I'll explain that in a moment. You've just made reference to it. The other tactics are meant to help you discover what might be wrong with another person's view. So we have a suicide tactic, we have a road scholar tactic, we have a just the facts spam tactic, and, um, and the uh, inside out tactic, and what a friend I have in Jesus tactic, that's in the new book. So uh, those are all helpful to position yourself in the discussion. But the game plan proper is what is the Colombo tactic, and some of your listeners might recognize the name from the TV detective who wears the rumpled trench coat and shows up with a cigar, but no pencil or pen to take notes. He's got to bum it off of somebody else. So he at least seems innocuous. He's, he's not dangerous at all. You know, he's stupid, but he's stupid like a fox because he's got a plan. And this is when he begins to ask these innocuous questions and getting information and slowly gathering what he needs, kind of going in under the radar in order to get the bad guy, right? And which he does every time because it's TV and so they can always be successful. That's the way they write those things. But the key is the questioning approach that Peter Falk playing Columbo uses in order to accomplish his goal. And what I've done then is built a game plan around that questioning approach. It has three different steps. So it's very easy for people to employ it. One thing to think about at a time, not at all complicated. And in fact, with the first two steps, I give a sample question for each step that they can modify according to the circumstances. And this gives them then the opportunity to do what is necessary to ease into a conversation, to clarify issues that people bring up, to become a student of the other person's point of view, and to bide your time until you see an opening where you can make an impact, but always using questions. Yeah. One of the things that you said in there too, when you're talking about the Colombo tactic was, is kind of close to my heart because, uh, so my wife and I, we are, um, church planners and we're, we're kind of in the process of, of getting ready to move up to Burlington, Vermont. Um, and, uh, right now we live in the heart of the, are there any, are there any Christians up there? Uh, not many. We, uh, we have the privilege of knowing, uh, some wonderful other church planners yeah. who are doing some amazing things. Uh, yeah. but, uh, they're about it, it seems like. Yeah. So, uh, and, um, well, so one of the you. things, uh, well, we're, we're excited and, um, uh, we're, we're going to be moving pretty soon. So we're just trying to, you know, wrap our brains around that and having a yeah. new baby soon. So our yeah. lives are about to shift dramatically, but, uh, we're excited. 
but yeah. one of the things that you were using the Colombo tactic with was the accusation of Christians being intolerable. And I thought that was a, a brilliant example of how to use the Colombo tactic right. um, in that kind of scenario. So can you kind of explain uh, how you would use it in that situation, just kind sure, of as an of example of what the Colombo tactic in, does? In general, the first thing that we want to do is to – this is the very first step of the tactic. We're not thinking about the end, end of the game. We're not thinking about uh, you know, winning people to Christ. That's it. We're not, it's not even on the uh, – it's not even you know, on the radar yet. First, got to gather some information. And so, um, and we do that by asking some form of the question, what do you mean by that? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a classic example in the book where I talk about meeting a witch in Wisconsin who's wearing a pentagram. And I just asked her about her jewelry. And that's how I found out she was a witch wearing the five pointed star. And we had a wonderful conversation. It was casual and warm. And, uh, and I think, uh, was able to get her thinking, or as I put it, put a stone in her shoe. This is what my goal is, just to get them thinking. But uh, the when when somebody calls you a name, and I've refined this approach in the new book, and I call this sticks and stones tactic. Uh, sticks and stones can break your bones, but names will never hurt you. Well, that's not entirely true. They do hurt, and they can distract. And so we have to have a way to deal with the distraction. Here's a classic one. Um, you're intolerant, Okay. So we might be talking about abortion, we might be talking about same-sex marriage, we might be talking about uh, Jesus and being the only way of salvation, and then we get this charge, we're intolerant. Okay, now, I just want you to notice, the person who says that has changed the subject. You were talking about an idea, and now we're talking about, uh, we're talking about the Christian's character, mm. you know? Now, just as an aside here, what if the person who was being called intolerant um, said back to the non-Christian, well, you're ugly? Well, well, I wouldn't say that, obviously, because it would be rude, but it would also be irrelevant. What's the difference? By the way, this this isn't how the dialogue goes. Uh, I'll give you the dialogue in a moment for your listeners, but I'm just making a point I want them to see. If we were to say that, they would be offended. Why did you call me a name? To which I might respond, why did you call me a name? So you attacked my character, I attacked your looks. Neither is relevant to the discussion that we were having. So why are we sidetracked on this thing? Okay. So what I want your listeners to see is there's been a subtle move. And by the way, this happens all the time. This is the most favorite move of the other side and they do it without thinking because everybody's doing it they call a name and they change the subject and then they get you off base so when somebody calls you a name intolerant for example um, you always ask a question and the question is our first colombo question what do you mean by that Okay. now here's the way it works in this conversation. And I think people will see how this uh, is uh, uh, played out. Um, Somebody says, well, you're intolerant. I said, why would you call me intolerant? And they said, well, you think you're right. You're right. And everybody else is wrong. Well, I I do think I'm right. I could be mistaken. And I'm glad to talk about it. But let me ask you a question. Do you think your views are right? You seem to be correcting me. Do you think your view is right? 
Now, what's the other person going to say? No, my views are all wrong. Okay. <laughs> no, they think their view is right. Okay. That's why they believe what they believe because they believe it's right. They may not know it's correct, but they certainly think it is just like the Christian thinks his view is correct. So the, the issue here, and here's the insight, both parties in the conversation thinks their view is correct, but only one is getting called a name, the Christian. So the way I close this conversation out, or at least move to the more pressing question, they say, you're intolerant. I say, what do you mean by that? What am I doing that would make you call me that name? Well, you think you're right. Well, I do, but do you think you're right? Sure, of course I think I'm right, but I'm not intolerant like you. Okay, well, now I have a final question. Why is it when I think I'm right, I'm intolerant, and when you think you're right, you're just right? What am I missing here? Now, of course, we're not missing anything. We see the shell game going on. But I promise you, the other person does not see it. They don't realize what they're doing. Everybody else in the culture does exactly the same thing they're doing, and they think it's brilliant. And nobody's held their feet to the fire on it. And so here we take a, a potentially debilitating maneuver from the other side that, that makes us look bad and stops us in our tracks. And we don't know what to do because now we're off the topic. We take that difficult circumstance. And because we have a couple of very particular questions in our toolkit, in our hip pocket, as it were, we can nicely in a relaxed not angry, not insulted, not troubled kind of way, just ask the question back to them. And when you ask that final question, well, why is it when I think I'm right, I'm intolerant, and you think you're right, you're just intolerant. 90% of the time you're going to get, here's a 60s alert, so hang on, you're going to get what I call a Simon and Garfunkel response. Those are the guys who wrote that wonderful song back in 1966, The Sounds of Silence. Right. You're going to ask them the question and they're going to be dead in the water because they won't know what to say. But you, the Christian here will be properly deflecting the, the inappropriate challenge, helping the other person to see that they've gotten, they've changed the subject, they've gotten off into some place that it shouldn't be, name calling, and then maybe we can get back on the topic. So when, they, when, when, when the, you, in a certain sense, spring the legitimate trap in that situation, you, the Christian could say, well, look, why don't we just forget about the name calling for a minute? And why don't we just get back to the topic without besmirching each other's character? I won't call you names. You won't call me names. We'll just talk about the topic. How's that sound to you? And by the way, notice how I just ended with another question. I threw the ball back in their court. I'm asking for them to give agreement to the manner now that I've suggested our conversation will continue. Very yeah. It really is. It really it's is. All, by the way, it's all in the book, too. What I just mentioned, this is all in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, it, what's so great about it, again, it's it's just it's so simple because, I mean, it's just asking questions back. Um, right. And like you said before, I mean, just asking the question, what do you mean by that? That is right. one of the things that I have found the most helpful in conversations when when especially speaking with atheists. So can you can you explain a little bit about how you would use the Colombo tactic with a lot of maybe some of the more uh, more popular atheistic attacks on uh, on Christianity? Sure, like an atheist would say, um, 
now some of these that I'm going to role play here a little bit involve a knowledge of some things in apologetics mm -hmm. that help guide my my sure. comments. But I'll offer this. So an atheist will say, "How could you believe in a god that where there's so much evil in the world?" Mm -hmm. So now I have a question. So you, you you agree that there's evil in the world? Well, of course I agree. That's what I just said. No, what I mean is you believe there's real evil in the world, right? So when you say there's evil in the world, I just want to be clear what you mean by that. Notice I'm working the first question here. I just want to be clear what you mean by that. Are you saying that there are things that are bad in themselves regardless of what people think? Or are you saying that there are some things you don't personally like? Okay, now that's the difference for our listeners between objectivism and morality. Some things are wrong in themselves as the object, so to speak. The quality of wrongness is in the rape or in the murder or torture or something like that, as opposed to the so-called wrongness being in the opinion in my heart about the thing, mm -hmm. you know. So and if he says, well, it's 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 wrong for me. OK. Oh, in other words, it's not actually wrong. It's just something you don't like. Now, what I'm just trying to do is get to this distinction between relativism and objectivism with regards mm -hmm. to morality. Because if you think about it, if he says, well, no, it's just wrong for me. I said, well, then what's your complaint? I, I don't like Brussels sprouts. They're, they're bad for me. And liver. Ooh, that's awful. But does this amount to a legitimate objection against God? Oh, I see the difference. Okay, no, I mean there's things that are really, really bad. So they're bad in themselves, right? Yes. Okay, but see, now I'm confused. What, what are you confused about? Well, um, you're not a theist. Right, I'm an atheist. How could anything be bad in itself if atheism is true and nothing exists but molecules clashing in the universe? Where do you get this system of where do you get now this, by the way, I'm just making a distinction here. Mm. Where do you get the rules, not how do you know the new the rules? People say, well, it's just common sense. Well, I agree with that. That's how you know it. You can learn how to read a book. That doesn't tell you where the writing came from. You can learn how to read morality because we're human beings made the image of God. But that doesn't tell you where the moral rules came from. And that's the question I'm asking. So notice here, there is a problem with an atheist objecting to the evil in the world. I haven't answered. I haven't even begun to answer how good, how there could be a good God with evil in the world. That's an issue and that needs to be answered. But I'm not going to go there yet and beyond the defensive until the atheist can make sense for me of his question. And if the atheist claim there's evil in the world, there's a problem mm -hmm. because there can't be evil if atheism is in the world in that sense, if atheism is true. Now, I might have gone a little fast. I know you're following me because you thought about these things before, but this is a little bit more of a complex idea that most Christians have not been exposed to. Mm -hmm. I've written on it a lot, on, uh, you know, and there's a lot of stuff on our website and a lot in the book kind of fleshing out that notion. But notice how I conducted myself. I already have in my mind a series of questions based on a rationale that I am going to ask the atheist that requires him to make sense of his objection. I'm not just parrying it. I'm not just running for the woods in a clever way. I'm saying, well, if you're an atheist, you're going to have to make sense of what you just asked me, okay? 
because there is no way to make sense of it as an atheist. Um, and so consequently, uh, I, I'm going to, in a certain sense, appropriately put him on the defensive instead of me being on the defensive. But all I'm doing is asking questions of clarification. All right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and knowing in my mind that he has a problem that he's probably not aware of. You know, atheists try to ground morality in evolution. And so when, when an atheist I talk to on my own ra- radio show, we have this discussion that I just role played. Um, he just went to evolution. Well, evolution can explain um, evolution can explain morality. And I said, so what you're saying to me is when you're complaining about the problem of evil, you are saying there are some things that are inconsistent with your personal evolution. And that's why you think that God can't exist. And he said, Yes. <laughs> but he couldn't say anything else. But you see, that's an absurd objection against God. Maybe right. other people evolve differently. What, what, what are the grounds for your objection? So anyway, there's an example of that question playing out. Hmm. Well, I could literally talk to you for hours, but I know you're, you, you've got to go eventually. Uh, so I want to ask one, just one last question, and that is, what would your like, parting advice be for uh, you know, young and old Christians who may just be getting into this for the first time, and they may be nervous to go and talk with uh, friends or even family members uh, about this kind of stuff? Is there yeah, any like, yeah. overall advice you would give to them? Well, it's the same advice in a certain sense that I have been giving, always ask questions. All right. Now, the reason that this is so important, uh, there's multiple reasons, but you mentioned kind of the novice, the, the newbie, you know, maybe doesn't know much. This is perfect for them. I use it and I've been in this for 45 years, you know, but I still do the same thing that I'm telling beginners to do because I cannot move forward in a conversation unless I have the lay of the land. And so I'm going to try to figure out what the other person thinks and why he thinks it. Those are our first two questions. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? The second question comes after the first question is answered. And this applies to all kinds of objections and challenges that are raised towards Christianity. What I want uh, the, the, the bulk of your audience to see, and which is that because many of them are new to this and maybe even new to Christianity and they're a little bit nervous about jumping in. They haven't read all the books that you have behind you on their bookcase, you know, and all that. So they don't have all the good stuff. All right. The, uh, this doesn't require that anybody know the good stuff. If your, your, your listeners just simply committed themselves not to making the case for Christianity, at least first off, but rather to asking questions as students of the other person's point of view, they are going to get an incredible education. They're going to learn two things, and this is from feedback I've got from other people. They're going to learn that people are not as scary as they thought. Mm. And they're going to learn that people, objectors, are not as smart as they thought. I'm not saying that the objectors are stupid, but sometimes we are like, grasshoppers in our own sight, you know, this is from numbers, you know, and the Jews looking at the giants in the land and they're overwhelmed by appearances. And when we start engaging and asking questions, just as a curious person, so we have nothing on the line, we're not making our case, we're not defending anything. 
um, we'll be amazed at what we hear. And and here's the real trick that that is going to amaze people. Those first two steps, just those two questions where you're just being a, a, a student, these are going to put the Christian in a position to make a difference, even if they're not making a point. I know this is so counterintuitive, but I'm telling you, years and years and years of doing this and watching other people do the same thing, it's the same response I get. We get people thinking about their own views in ways that they never did before, and we end up planting, uh, putting a stone in their shoe, planting a seed of doubt in their mind. There is an atheist right now, Peter Bogosian, in Portland State University. He's written a book called Tactics, uh, actually it's called um, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and it's a tactics book for atheists. Here's what he says to them. This is Peter Bogosi and the atheist. You want to get Christians to not believe in Christianity anymore, not believe in God, and he's effective in doing it? He said, don't argue for atheism. Don't argue against Christianity. Just ask questions about their faith. That's all he does, okay? And what happens? He ends up putting a stone in the Christian's shoe. They may act like they're all confident, but inside something's going on. And that is they're beginning to doubt their own convictions because they don't have good reasons for it. Mm. We can do the same. We ask questions and we'll see what God does. So to sum it all up, what I'm telling your listeners is they don't have to swing for the fences, all right? They don't even have to get on base in my view. They just have to get into the batter's box. And the tactical game plan in the tactics book, especially in the updated 10th anniversary edition, is going to allow them to do that. And once they get in the batter's box, they can watch and see what the Holy Spirit does. They will be amazed. How can people find uh, find the work that you do? Or, or what's the best way for people to, to get a hold? Maybe not get a hold of you. You don't want that. But, uh, <laughs> but how can uh, people find out uh, the work that you're doing and, and learn a little bit more? Yeah, well, some people may want me to come out to their church or their conference or whatever, and they could just contact uh, Stand to Reason through our website uh, and, and say, hey, we're interested in this. Somebody will get in touch with them and set it up. But our website for Stand to Reason, the acronym is STR, Stand to Reason. The website is str.org. They can go right there right now and they can get the book. It's all ready. We'll ship it to them right away. And they'll probably get a signed copy because I signed a bunch of books uh, the last few weeks. I got more to do. Um, or they can go for, to Amazon. That's another source. They can go to Barnes & Noble. Um, there's a lot of standard outlets they can go to to get the book. I just saw uh, somebody sent me a picture of the book prominently displayed in their local Barnes and Noble in Colorado. Wow. So uh, I was glad to see it. Yeah, this was prominent. It was like face out, not just the Man. spine showing, but face out. There it was. So and in Colorado too. Good job. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm really glad for this launch of the new book. I think even people who own the first book will be really thrilled to get the second one. There's a lot of new stuff in there. Uh, I've I've done a, I've cleaned up the writing a bit and wordsmith better than the original edition, and uh, I don't want them to miss the things that I've added and the things I've learned over the last ten years. So try str.org for all of our stuff in general. Uh, they can listen to my podcast that's available at, at um, uh, iTunes or Stand to Reason. And a podcast is just simply called Stand to Reason. Uh, but I definitely want them to get the book. And that's the great, the best way for them to get rolling in this. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for doing this. This was fantastic. And I actually have to go now because I got uh, some book buying to do, apparently. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate it so much. And uh, it was fantastic talking with you. Thank you, Michael. All the best to you and all your new plans coming up. Thank you so much.